Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Don't Tell Me The Score the podcast that uses sport to explore life's bigger questions. My name is Simon Mundy, and each week I sit down with an expert from the biggest sporting names in the world to Buddhist monks, neuroscientists, psychologists, and philosophers. We discuss a theme that tells us something insightful and important about life and how best to live it, from the importance of self-acceptance to facing addiction and developing resilience, right through to getting your circadian rhythms in sync and how to sleep better. Sport is a metaphor for life, and in this podcast, I aim to prove that right. In this episode, I'm joined by one of Britain's greatest coaches, Danny Kerry. He led Team GB's women to gold in hockey at the Rio Olympics in 2016, and he's taking Britain's men to Tokyo this summer to try and repeat the trick, all being well. Now, Danny is full of the sort of don't tell me the score nuggets and life lessons that I love to hear. He's really full of so much good stuff in this episode around things like emotional intelligence, tough conversations, acknowledging emotions, working under pressure and the power of values, just to name a few. But the overall theme is self-awareness, as Danny's just been on a huge journey on that front over four Olympic cycles to date, really learning and growing as he's gone. And honestly, the lessons he shares are absolutely gold. And I guarantee you'll be able to get loads from it that you could think to apply in your own life. As always, I'd be delighted to hear from you. Thoughts, questions, suggestions, whatever. The best way to get in touch these days is via my social media. I'm at Simon Mundy. And please do pay a visit to my website too to sign up to my newsletter, simonmundy.com. Anyway, here is... Danny Kerry. Danny Kerry, how are you? I'm um, well, thanks, Simon. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. I am thrilled to have you on. 
Uh, as you know, I've spoken to Alex Danson and Kate Richardson Walsh, the captain and top scorer from the 2016 gold medal winning team of which you were coach. Also spoken to Harry Gibson, probably weren't expecting that one. He and I are, oh, are in wow. a, Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> one of your current crop. He and I are in yeah. a, a WhatsApp group. Quick shout out to the tribe. So yes, yeah, so I've got a bit of that, but I'll tell you what I find fascinating or why I'm so excited because let's be honest, hockey isn't one of those sports that I think takes up the majority of sports bulletins of back pages. That tends to go to football, occasionally rugby, maybe occasionally golf, tennis, that kind of thing. But I think in terms of coaching and in terms of sport, I think your CV as a coach matches up to anyone's really. I'm talking your Ferguson's, your, your Woodward's, you're up there as one of the greats. So I want to check out what you're like at receiving compliments. I've turned the video off, as you know. So, and Alex Danson called you a master tactician. So now that I've said all that, how do you feel? That squirming is probably uncomfortable, probably. I thought you might, but let's be honest about it, right? Okay. There are lots of obviously tournaments that hockey teams play in, but I think for you, if we look at the Olympic progression, you started back in 2003. The uh, trajectory of the team's gone like this. Non-qualifier 2004, 6th Beijing 2008 when you were ranked 11th in the world. Bronze medalist London 2012, which I remember really well. The atmosphere at the Games was unbelievable. And then, of course, gold in 2016. So that's a, a very steep upward trajectory, isn't it? It is, Simon. I, I, um, I actually started in 05. Oh, goodness. So, well, so, 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 well, there you that, go. The that, non-qualifiers that. was not your problem then. Even better. No, but it was actually really sort of fertile ground often I think when a team has really had a bad experience is often fertile ground for some really good change so I was in a strange way rather fortunate to um, step into that role at that point. Mm. Now to kick things off I don't want to leap straight to the good stuff I want to put you in an even more slightly uncomfortable position potentially (laughs) I want to go to 2008. How much of yourself did you give to Team GB? in terms of prepping for Beijing, the years in the run-up to it? I think like anyone involved in a, in a role which you're absolutely passionate about, it isn't your sort of classic working week. It's pretty much your every waking moment and you feel you're giving everything. I was pretty young and green and naive at the time, but um, absolutely gave everything for the three and a half years between sort of taking the role in January 05 and the, the Games themselves in August 2008. So... I have a sense of where you're going with the next question. But uh, yeah, I I really felt I'd given pretty much everything. So the team finished sixth, despite being ranked 11th. So theoretically a success. As you were returning home on the plane and before the official debrief, what were you thinking? There were a few moments through the games, but one that really sticks out to me was there was that we have a sort of informal dispersal meeting actually at the Athletes Village in uh, Beijing. And you'd have to be a complete idiot to not realise that you've lost the group, Um, particularly athletes, but some staff as well. Just the way people interact with you. I knew for whatever reason I'd lost the group. And of course, when you're you're sort of relatively new to the game, your sort of self-protection measures kick in and you don't sort of look at yourself that hard at that moment. You're just sort of thinking, well, what have I done? But I knew I'd lost the group. And then... How how did you know? I guess, Simon, if you're in a space with people you respect and trust and their interactions with you are just at that sort of very, very transactional level, there isn't a sort of a warmth to it. There isn't the relationship there. So it's a bit people, Kurt. You know, Kurt, 
passive aggressive you, you name it you, you kind of knew so how did you um, feel then even before the debrief i think i was in a bit of denial my sense was that um you know people had a bit of a beef or an issue and it's just a bit of a tough environment and they need to sort of realize that sometimes informational coaching is a bit of a tough gig and you're giving some tough messages and they needed to grow up a bit yeah. but the reality was you know i'd lost people mm. um, and i'd made what should have been a pretty um an amazing life experience for some of them a pretty pretty miserable experience probably but that sort of insight i didn't have at that time no. you're in sort of a bit of denial so you were thinking this is their problem they need to buckle up a little bit so then just take me into that moment when you went into your post games appraisal and sounds like you were somewhat torn limb from limb i picked up a couple of your quotes you used words like betrayal character assassination what was that experience like hearing that so um if i paint a picture simon you know you've worked incredibly closely with people you've been all over the world you've shared some pretty tough experiences together and on one level, you feel you've really done everything in your power to do right by people. And the reality is you've not achieved that. And, and you've also not created an environment where people have actually had the safe enough space to kind of feed back to you as that program has been going on. So what happens is you get it sort of all in one massive dose uh, at the end of the Olympic cycle where at that time, it was the performance director, David Faulkner, and the chairman of the board, Philip Kimberley, who sat me in a room at Bisham Abbey and literally put slide after slide of text, which was sort of direct verbatim quotes from athletes and staff. And, um, you know, in that context, reading those things, and it being, you know, very blunt, very, it, it did feel like betrayal. It did feel very, very harsh. I think... I was very fortunate at the time, for whatever reason, rather than reacting adversely to it, I, I sort of saw it for what it was, realized that, yes, I, I was the creator of those things rather than sort of going classically to denial and anger about it. I sort of pretty quickly got to a space of, yeah, okay, I can see why people are saying I'm feeling that. So um, I think had I not reacted that way, I probably wouldn't have um, kept the role. You said you wanted to quit, though, didn't you? Didn't it take a critical intervention from your now wife, Lisa, who was able to go, look, yes. this is not you. This is a perception of you. Yeah, 100%. So I only lived a very short distance from Bishop at the time, and um, I managed to get myself home. I was pretty upset. I managed to get home, and um, Lisa could tell I was pretty upset, and we went for a walk. And, you know, I was just sitting there asking the question, why am I doing this? I've given everything and this is kind of what you get back in return. And I was pretty distraught. You know, I wasn't really sure what the future held for me. And then Lisa sort of said, well, you're not really the person that they're painting, are you? This is a really simple fix. And, you know, what it's like some of the people who know you best have a sort of innate ability to sort of summarize it and play it back to you in a way that captures the reality of the situation. And and I thought, yeah, no, I'm not that person. And if I am given the opportunity to continue, because I wasn't sure I was going to be given the opportunity at that point, I thought I can definitely be more me and become much better in, as a coach as, as a result of a pretty harrowing, tough experience. I mean, you've called it the hardest moment of your professional life. Like you said, you were in bits a bit afterwards and you know your wife was able to come in and give that helicopter view if you like i think it's called solomon's paradox isn't it we're better at being able to give a bit of an objective view of people around us is problems than when we're in the middle of it 
but you've also described it as the best development as well for you. It was a bit of a perfect storm. That Beijing Olympic experience also came at the same time. I was involved um, on a UK sport program um, called Elite Coach. There were sort of a cohort of 10 of us and we were having an incredible opportunity presented to us over three years. And so there was a lot of peer-to-peer feedback during that time, a lot of you know, what you would call professional development through that. So I had sort of that experience plus the Olympic experience plus a sort of a very supportive, albeit challenging, performance director and chairman who decided to continue with me. And um, I think had had I not had that sort of direct feedback and also had it sort of in conjunction with other insights that had come through the sort of journey I'd been on through the elite coach program with the UK sport, I don't think the team that I was working with would have gone on to be as successful as you were through sort of 2012 and then into 2016. Mm. So some of the people who played at 2012 and 2016, who you went on to achieve huge success with, they were some of the same people who were saying stuff that was being flashed up in slides, denigrating you essentially. Yes, absolutely. And I genuinely didn't carry any sort of malice around with me because I genuinely came to accept that the issue laid with me and that was their first real opportunity to sort of feedback and seek change. Um, the thing I was very fearful of was, you know, whether people would ever trust me again or would ever be able to work with me in a way that would sort of go beyond the transactional. I mean, I don't want to paint too disastrous a picture. I think there were some, there were some athletes who, who appreciated me and realized I wasn't just some ogre. horrible ogre, yes. However, definitely there were some athletes I had to really reach out to and work hard. I, I met with a particular athlete in a cafe in Wimbledon a few weeks after Beijing and was desperate for that athlete to stay involved in the program. And I, and I knew I'd really made her time in Beijing a pretty miserable time. Doing at the time, I thought, was you know just yeah. a good job of giving hard feedback, but um, delivering it with no skills, with no relationship built there. And, so I, I worked hard in the subsequent years. I, I've always wondered, you know, because we all have our own insecurities, I've always wondered whether sort of that level of trust ever reached the level it could have done had those experiences not happened in Beijing. It is interesting, though. I mean, I read a quote recently. It read, a different version of you exists in the mind of everyone who knows you, which I thought was quite interesting because, like you say, so some people won't have taken to your style, others will, but equally, like your wife said, None of them necessarily really had it right, as it were. So how were you not showing up in the way that obviously you you honed your skills? I know you're very technically minded when it comes to hockey and tactics and everything like that, but am I right in saying you were slightly neglecting that human aspect in terms of developing the relationships, people not feeling seen, heard, so on and so forth? Yes, I mean, without getting too sort of theoretical about it, which almost proves the point you're making, Simon, I think... Um, we all go to our default, particularly under pressure. And and my default is sort of described as a forceful outcome-orientated approach. Um, so know what needs to be done, get on and make it so. And as a result, you know, the things that can really <laughs> not be attended to is sort of how people feel uh, in that environment and the building of relationships in that environment. And for those who really know me very well, that is almost the antithesis of my value system. I really care what people feel. I really want them to feel valued. Although the projection of what that can feel like when I'm in my, right, this is what we need to get done, systematically unpicking that and getting on with it, it can particularly under you know under pressure and default, 
that that can get lost to the point that I I have a little mantra now, sort of I just I which I use is sort of where am I, where do I need to be, and where are they, i.e., whoever I'm interacting with, and where do they need to be? So again, it tends to be a bit outcome orientated. You know, where am I? Yeah. Where do I need to be? Where are they? Where do they need to be? But it, it really allows me to sort of check myself stepping into a yet another meeting, yet another debrief, yet another interaction. And at times I've really got a buzz about my role, about my job, when you manage to check yourself and you realise actually at this point you need to bring a bit of difference, a bit of energy, a bit of humour, because that actually will help all of us achieve where we need to go. Mm. And then I really beat myself up. Um, and I've learned to now be a little bit kinder to myself where sometimes you don't get it right and you hit the wrong tone and you lose people and just realise that, that would always be the case and move on. Whereas sometimes I would ruminate for ages when I've, when I've not done it well. Absolutely. Yeah. I completely agree with that. And there's quite a lot to sort of unpick there. And, you know, I feel like I've given you a bit of a hard time just <laughs> reflecting back in 2008. So I will, you know, in the interest of um, flipping it back to life, because I said to you, we had a brief chat a few days ago and I'd obviously read about this experience you've been through and I gave an example from my own life where I've just written it down. You call it forceful outcome orientated approach. So I don't know if I'd describe mine in quite the same um, language, but my partner came to me, uh, Alex came to me and she was having a whinge about something. I was like, you should do X, Y, Z. And then she got in a half, went away, came back in the room, you know, I don't know, an hour later, she won't mind me saying this, said, look, I didn't want you to fix it. I wanted you to listen to me and you can sometimes be a bit of a know-all and so on and so forth, right? And of course, it stings at the time, but actually then it, it's useful feedback. So now I talk, whenever I catch myself, and this is only a week ago, but she successfully noticed it once or twice, I'll say, oh, sorry, I'm trying to fix you here rather than listening. But to take it back to your story, what I think is really fascinating is that you went through this that was really hard, but actually ended up being so valuable. And you know, you've got this wonderful mantra that I want to explore a bit later, and really then focused on on the human side and the relationship side. And it sounds to me like this really fed into the culture. Ultimately, here's a simple question that's going to sum up my ramblings. Do you think without having gone through that, you would have been the coach that was capable of taking a team to gold in 2016? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And I, I often reflect the thing that possibly most gets in the way of performance is, is often the coach. So, you know, the coach will do an awful lot to, to help prepare and take the team or athletes to where they need to be. But often they're also the, the handbrake or the, the glass ceiling as well. And yeah, I think that sort of pretty powerful period uh, really helped me realize that and understand, you know, are, are you actually the handbrake here? And even to this day, you know, I've been in the role many, many years. I will sort of stop and think, okay, am I, am I just getting in the way of people here? I'm currently working with sort of the two psychologists in our program and, and a lot of my default is I see a lot of threat in the environment and I don't bring as much optimism as I might. So how I use language to talk about the opposition and the opportunity that presents rather than the threats it presents. You know, I'm constantly in that space of how can I do this better? How can I work with these athletes in a better way? I do think, and I'm interested to what degree you agree, a humbling in whatever form it comes. And there are lots of people I've spoken to, don't tell me the school, who've been humbled in various ways, some pretty extreme. But a humbling, whilst painful at the time, can be just such a, a valuable thing to go through in terms of personal growth. 
Yes, I, I think uh, in certain domains, whether it's particular parts of the military or in other domains where you get yourself stripped back, you know, to your core, you kind of really understand why you are the way you are. That's when I think where some of the biggest growth happens. And when we proactively seek to do that also with our athletes, try to strip them back at times and make them understand their journey, why they are the way they are to allow even greater growth. Uh, and it, for everybody, you know, at times, it's a pretty uncomfortable journey. And I just think of some of the, again, people I've spoken to have achieved amazing things, yet the ones who stick in my mind are the ones who achieve great things and remain humble. Yeah, I mean, I, I think of some of the people I respect most who I've worked with, I mean, Alex Danson is... Mm. Oh, she's incredible. Re- right? re- really stands out, epitome of the word, humility. And there are numerous athletes that I've worked with and staff that you quite phenomenal human beings i always sort of joke that if you break them in half it's sort of be light shining out of the middle of them you know it's they're those type of people you love to kind of be around and you feel a little bit like oh i'm not sure i can quite live up to them and just a quick word on, on alex is slightly different but she obviously went through that terrible brain injury so bashed her head on holiday and she said at the time someone said to her early on that this will end up being a blessing and she wanted to throttle that person but actually it ended up being that and in your case, you went through something different, but still brutal. And it ended up in some ways being a blessing. And just something I always think is we just don't know at the time. Something that, that may seem is very painful may end up being one of the best things that can happen to us. Do you agree with that or not? Yeah, I mean, I think there's that brilliant book, isn't it? The Victor Frankl oh, book, yeah. sort of Man's Search for Meaning. I mean, you can choose your attitude to those situations. Whether that might be a bit delayed, you may not be able to in the moment, but subsequently you have an ability to choose your attitude to what's happened and tends to define what happens next, in, in my opinion. So I think some of those hardship moments where you are stripped back, your true self gets revealed to yourself and your ability then to take stock and decide where you want to go next mm. is really key. Mm. Very quick nod to one person in particular who stands out for me, and that's Sir John Cohen, who I, who's knighted for services to mental health, was laid so low by a mental health episode. Actually, now he looks back, and even though he was close to ending it, he now looks back at and even that as a blessing. So, And there are so many examples of that from people I've spoken to. Before we move on to something that I imagine emerged to some degree from that difficult period you went through and and was responsible then for the success that you had. Just a final word on that 2008 experience a little bit more broadly. The problem I would say that, or something that's quite common, which is to sweep issues under the carpet, things being left unsaid. And obviously you, you got it thrown right at you in pretty brutal fashion. But sweeping things under the carpet, generally, I'm speaking here as well, not just in sport, which is obviously a metaphor for life, but generally sweeping issues under the carpet is not a good thing. Would you agree with that? A hundred percent. I think often what sits at the reason why things get swept under the carpet is we just worry about that it won't land well or the effect on the relationship between ourselves. And often, therefore, we're probably protecting ourselves as much as we're protecting the other person. Again, sort of Katie Warrenow, who's one of the psychologists in our program, shared with me a fantastic model called Radical Candor by Scott. It's really now a little model I try to keep front and center when I know I'm going to have some pretty tough conversations with athletes. And, it, and essentially, it's care personally, challenge directly. And, and then the other way of thinking about it is to be clear is to be kind and to be unclear is unkind. And that's the approach I now really take. I've become more skillful about thinking about 
when and how so that the space and the environment that, that difficult conversation will happen and i also work very very hard now to try and understand the other person's perspective and intent for some of the behaviors they've perhaps been exhibiting and again try and listen deeply and acknowledge that and that framework has allowed me to have some pretty tough conversations particularly in the last 18 months those conversations really help people grow and it hasn't damaged my relationship with them as well which can or has been in the past the sort of byproduct of really tough conversations you just end up damaging the relationship yeah care personally challenge directly just thinking how i would interpret that so would another way of saying that be be kind but honest yeah i guess that's a simpler way of putting it simon um your ability to have built the relationship prior to understand them to understand a little bit about them to understand the context of the behavior we've noticed this could you bring to light you know what why what was your thinking what were you feeling and often there's a context and a history there where if you don't seek that and you go wading in you may never get that context. You may never really understand what sits behind that behavior. And therefore, you're not in a position to engage in a really meaningful conversation around it. So some of those skills, I've really tried to hone them in the last 18 months, two years, largely in part with great help from some really good practitioners that have, I'm fortunate to have in the program. Mm. Quick note on this. I do think totally this is sport metaphor for life territory, being kind but honest whether that's families, relationships, work. I can't think of a single arena where that isn't best practice. But look, we've got to move on because I've got so much I want to talk to you about. I warned you I'm a meanderer. So, that's quite all right. <laughs> right, let's yeah. get on to culture. You've said, for example, culture precedes performance. And you know, in terms of winning gold in 2016, which we'll come to, and even the, the bronze in 2012, the importance of culture. Before we get on to how to do that and all that kind of stuff, two questions. To what degree was this born then of your earlier experience? And then secondly, more broadly, can you define what culture is for me? Yes, it was born of my experiences in Beijing. I, I was very, very keen. I'd been given you know, real opportunities to continue and I was adamant that I was going to try to create a much different environment for the athletes, one where they felt truly empowered and owned the program and had a voice. And essentially what we're talking about there is sort of the building of a good performance team culture. If I were to try and define culture in a really a way that everyone can sort of get their head around really simply, is I think if you walk into somewhere and it's what you feel, sense, see, hear in that environment. So quite often I refer to if you walk into your local pub, mm. you'll have a sense of the culture of that pub. It'll be, again, what you feel, you sense, you see, you hear, and you have a sense of whether you belong there or not. And the way that people interact with you, you'll have a sense of, yeah, I, I like it here. And what, what I was adamant of trying to achieve through the London cycle was trying to create an environment where people wanted to belong to that environment. They felt they designed and built that environment. And what you saw, felt, feel, hear, see was what they had designed and what they had decided for themselves. And I think my role was just as an initial catalyst in that. Mm. A big part of it was... The players, the team, the squad, everyone involved had ownership and was part and had responsibility as well for the way everyone behaved, for the values, for the purpose, for the vision, everything like that. So everyone is really taking ownership and involved in the whole big picture. Yes, and I, I think the key, Simon, is that it for us, it was very much what I would call an iterative process. So we did that classic work 
that you'll often see in many walks of life. But I think where we were exceptional was that we would review after every three-week training block, and there were two questions. The first question was a very simple one, did we live our performance culture, yes or no? And then they had a Likert scale, one to four. So they couldn't sit on their fence. Uh, and then they had to write some qualitative text as to why they'd put the answer. And that information was all collated and went back to the playing group, who then took on board what they were saying to each other and where they could grow and what needed to just evolve slightly and what needed to be addressed. And so what you're doing there is you're bringing it to life. You're genuinely creating athlete ownership of the environment. And it's a living thing rather than it's an exercise you've done and then the vision values behavior sits on some document on a wall somewhere. It becomes a an everyday thing. And there are other aspects you can do to make an everyday thing, but that sort of constant evolution iteration was, I think, quite key to a really good performance culture through the women's programs. Totally agree. I think I've been in organizations where they've had that day where you establish the values and the the vision and all that stuff and then it gets stuck up on the wall and before you know it you're walking past it and you don't even notice it you've got to keep revisiting it so we're going to skip actually over london 2012 briefly obviously that was a hell of an achievement winning bronze at 2012 london 2012 i know obviously you were aiming high but even to manage that but let's skip forward 2014 you weren't in charge and there was a dip in terms of the team and kate richardson walsh really spoke quite powerfully about this in an earlier episode alex as well so you were then brought back in, weren't you, in, in 2015 into something of an unhappy squad and there were things being left unsaid. And obviously with your own experiences, you were aware of what needed doing. And But the players themselves, didn't they come to you and say, look, we need to have it out essentially and you need to make it happen? Yes. So at the back end of 2014, just prior to the Commonwealth Games, stepped back into the head coach role. It was really apparent given some conversation with the athletes, there was a lot sort of simmering under the surface. We brought in um, a lady called Kate Hayes who did a fabulous job. We deliberately brought someone from outside of our environment. And um, essentially, Kate locked all of the squad in a room. I wasn't present, she was just herself and the athletes uh, in a room at Bisham Abbey where they spent a day. And they sort of agreed the ground rules for the day. Cannot leave this room until everything's sort of out. I remember Sally Monday, who was our chief executive, talked to sort of, you know, get the blood on the wall you know get it out <laughs> that's a nice image and um because kate hayes did such a good job of setting it up and framing it uh, and making it safe enough for that to happen it allowed a lot of conflict to be put out there and critically for me always when when there's other elements of conflict is people are second guessing other people's intentions and and filling that second guessing with their own assumptions and and you just get this horrible situation where People don't like what they see, but they don't understand what they see and they fill it with their own judgment. And I think that process actually was, again, it was really good fertile ground for them the last two years leading into Rio. So we understood if, if you don't have a good performance culture, if you don't have that evolution iteration, that ownership of the team by the team, then you can end up in a pretty sticky place. Mm. So it was, it was a nice fertile ground to sort of step back into. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And Kate Richardson Walsh, I remember saying to me when I asked her to elaborate a little bit on it, since retiring, Kate was captain, obviously, 2016. And she said since retiring, she, like you, goes into lots of companies and she says that actually what she learned from that, that you can take into any other area of life. So many problems in companies, families, whatever, are just things left unsaid, like you say, and they sort of get murky and misunderstood and all this kind of stuff and layer upon layer. So again, it comes back to having those tough conversations and and getting things off your chest. And I've heard you say that actually the final words that came out of that you know, the reconnection, the the vision forward, all that kind of stuff. Going through that process may have even been more important than the final words that were, you know, summarized, should we say. So why do you think the process is more important than the what may come out of it? I think what becomes apparent if those processes happen and are facilitated skillfully is you all of a sudden you realize there are multiple different perspectives on on the same situation. And I think often when we're sort of young, keen, and perhaps naive is we only see one perspective on on a situation that's our own. And as soon as we start to share and understand other people's context, other people's perspective, other people's journeys, we have a greater tolerance and acceptance, probably is a better word, a greater acceptance of why people are the way they are and why they react and respond the way they do in certain pressure situations. And that greater level of knowledge and greater acceptance actually allows you to be supportive of other people whereas if you have an absence of those things all you're doing is sort of second guessing their intent about things and sometimes um, you may assess that their intent is not genuine it's not for the team and and you sow conflict so yeah the process and the unveiling of multiple perspectives is a really good place to build trust yeah. build a capacity for people to support one another because it is it is a tough environment yeah. and um yeah we're in a better position to support because we understand the other person's context better oh yeah that's such a good point we're, we're all prone to layering interpretation upon reality and i mean none of us really gets absolutely right and um another thing that kate said as well that seemed to come out of that 
was that it bred a a sense of authenticity being okay. And so, for example, she said it, it was okay to not be okay and creating that environment in which people could speak up and speak openly and say, you know, today's not such a good day. So that obviously filtered through just into that connection that was not only did it get rid of tension, let's say, but it also just fed into connection just more broadly that was then able people to turn up as their authentic selves day after day. And that's when people are at their most powerful, isn't it? Yes. And that works both directions. It's often once you've built that relationship, people will also sort of offer what they really value about you mm. um, and what they love when you bring to the party. And could you bring more of that? And often some people will hide their lights under a bushel and uh, if you've built the relationship and and you're doing that and you are hiding with some of your strengths some of your teammates are saying look we really value this with you from you please keep doing it you know it really helps me feel better and brings better out of me so it, it, it works in both directions in one it helps support people in having a tough time but it also sort of that mutually understanding of i really appreciate it when you bring this can you do it more please and it, that, that helps build as a source of confidence and it brings a really good environment in the team overall. In terms of the purpose that was set, inspiring the next generation vision purpose, playing for something bigger than yourself that seemed to be such a key factor in the 2016 win, was that born of meetings like that as well? Yes, it was all part of the initial sort of performance culture generation and then part of the subsequent evolution over a period of time. I think the thing I would really stress is if you have a higher purpose than just an outcome, so often, you know, when you ask an Olympic athlete, what do you want to achieve? And they'll say, oh, I want to win an Olympic gold medal. Well, the question then is, well, you know, if you train for 8, 12 years and you haven't won an Olympic gold medal, has it all been a waste of time? So what is a more meaningful reason? It becomes a performance lever where if you're making a tough decision to choose to do something and you're uncertain about whether you'll just receive an outcome goal, but you actually will be certain that you might achieve some connection with your teammates, a real sense of belonging, being part of an aspirational group, that can become a really good lever for you to continue to make really good choices and decisions in really tough environments where if you don't have that connection to something a higher order you may just put yourself first at that point and, and make a bad decision a bad choice so yeah a sort of a higher purpose uh, which for the women once they discussed at length you know why are we here every single athlete talked about the first time they were inspired watching the olympics themselves people like jane sixsmith when they were young and they said we would love to do the same and we are totally in control of that how we carry ourselves our deportment how we interact with our fans we're in control of that and that's something that um, you know can't be taken away from us whereas an outcome goal isn't totally in our mm. control mm. so yeah a higher purpose is a really fundamental part of how people keep attuned to their teammates keep making good decisions for the greater good of the group and um, I remember listening to the team, a number of the athletes on the BBC sofa mm. in Rio up the morning after, and the athletes are talking about the 31 in the squad. They're not talking about me, me, me. They're talking about the 31. And that, for me, was the bit I was you know, most proud about was that you know, their collective culture was sort of even after a very long night out on the tiles, having won Olympic gold medal, they're still talking about us, the 31. That's beautiful. That's values over goals, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. I've spoken to quite a few people about this and values is something that really comes up a lot. And we obviously live in a very goal-focused 
culture, shall we say? Certainly, sport is, isn't it? But uh, actually, yeah, like you say, values can give you that intrinsic motivation day after day, moment from moment, and you have control over it versus goals, which ultimately you don't. As we've seen with Tokyo, we're still somewhat up in the air. Yes, and you know, the other way. I think one of the benefits of being in that team environment is you're mutually accountable to one another. And there will be moments when you're just struggling. You think, I really just want to eat something bad for me. <laughs> I just don't want to have this X meal to the hence time. You know, I actually want to just live a little bit. And too many of those moments will mean that the team and that individual won't achieve what it wants to do. So if you've created a culture where there's a higher purpose and you're just trying to make those tough decisions in tough moments, you would become a bit more mutually accountable to one another. You're going to more often than not make the right decision. Occasionally you'll get it wrong, but more often than not, there'll be the right decisions for yourself and for the greater good of the team. Yeah, it's like a compass, isn't it? Yeah. Let's get onto your fabulous mantra again, because I think this is brilliant. And I was thinking about how I could go about applying this in my own life. And again, I think this really can be, other people could nick this and use this in any field. And it's a, such a good way of being self-aware, but also then, putting yourself in other people's shoes, which is very few of us are particularly good at. So just to recap it and tell me if I've got it wrong. So where am I? Where do I need to be? And then where are they? And where do they need to be? So can you just talk to me a bit about this mantra, where it sort of came from, if you can just briefly touch on it, but then yeah, how you put it into practice and what an impact it can have. Yeah, if I paint a picture, Simon, you know, you can be at the Olympic Games. It's uh, the Olympics themselves only last two weeks, but you'll be there for a month. And they're very, very, very long days. And as I say, under default, particularly when we're tired, you just go to your lowest base level, your normal operating system, which for me is sort of high introversion, a lot of sort of what needs to be done. And the real blind spot about that is sort of relationships and how people are feeling. So through my sort of experiences in the Beijing cycle and then through London and into Rio, I knew that I kind of almost needed a little bit of a self-check mechanism getting up in the morning or late at night prior to a team meeting or with a staff meeting or something is literally just asking myself, where am I? Yeah, I'm absolutely shattered. I'm a bit grumpy. I'm a bit miserable. Things haven't quite gone our way. Okay, where do I need to be? Uh, Actually, yeah, it's okay. You can be those things as long as you're willing to maybe delegate someone else to chair this meeting. Where do the people in this meeting need to be? Do they need to be happy, clappy at this point? No, it's okay. It's all right. Don't you know? cut yourself a break. It can be a pretty low-key meeting. Or actually, no, this needs to be fun, happy. Are you the best person to deliver that at the time? Yeah, maybe I can get myself in that space. Or actually, no, there's someone better place for that. Right, reach out to them. So that's kind of my mental checklist that i'm sort of thinking my way through the bit that i've probably improved recently is the bit that so i've popped in there which is am i actually the best person at this moment is there someone better place to lead on this and what energy needed or what process is needed do they have the skills and learning to delegate a bit however at times is also realizing that actually it does need me and it needs me to be energetic and optimistic at this point and i need to get in that space yeah, once you've done it enough times, you you know when you can access it and how to access it. And you'll you'll have a tacit sense of what the group needs at this point in time. If I get it wrong, and often when it's I'm highly tired, I'll forget to do that and I'll carry my fatigue into the meeting or I'll carry my sort of outcome orientated, break the problem down approach where actually it needs something different. Mm. 
sorry, I've went off. No, on no, no, no. Listen, no, because I think I love this. I think this is. I've done an episode with Daniel Goleman recently, who wrote the brilliant book Emotional Intelligence, and this is the closest thing I think I've heard to a shortcut question to develop emotional intelligence. Really, do you ask this question in your own life outside of coaching? Uh, yeah. The interesting is with my children. There um, we go. <laughs> so, so, so I can be stuck in my little home office here for you know, hours on end, and I will ask literally before I step out. I say, well, actually, what do the kids need now? They need me to be dad. They need fun, mm. and they need boisterous. And um, yeah, it really works for me. I, I find it quite an easy thing to sort of switch roles, switch modes, and critically, Simon, for me. You get the reaction back from the people you're working with, or from the you know, from your children, and you it feels really great when you know you've brought your right self at the time. Yeah, it's a great question for emotional intelligence. A great question to lead into your values, because let's say your values is to be, I don't know, loving or whatever, or supportive. And oftentimes, you know, I will wake up in a mood or whatever, and, and it's e- too all too easy to be a bit snappy or a bit mardy. Actually, having something like this, a question that you can fall back on to catch yourself must be brilliant. I mean, is it habit now for you? And also, has it helped you get better in touch with how you feel and also what other people's needs are? Yes, 100%. And I had some health issues in 2017. And um, part of that was because I was burying certain aspects of how I was feeling. I had this sort of rather poor view that, you know, I needed to be sort of this tough, steely person that could cope with all things. And I was sort of burying a lot of that. So now one of the things I've added to this is, if, you know, if I'm feeling pretty angry, I'm feeling that we've let ourselves down, we haven't performed or, or lived our values in the way we've trained or played, I, I will actually just talk to that emotion now. I'll actually say to the, uh, now with the men's program, I'll say to the lads, listen, lads, I'm really I'm really angry. That's just not acceptable. It's not where we need to be. So rather than being angry at people, mm. I will I will talk to the anger, and it actually allows me to feel a hell of a lot better. Um, rather than trying to bury it and not be true to the emotion I'm feeling. Yeah. So you're acknowledging um, it in doing that. Yeah. And and, yeah. and I guess in in doing that as well, then you are not being swallowed by that. You're not ignoring it or repressing it, but equally you're not being as controlled by it. Yeah. And again, when I'm in a particularly bad spot, I'll then begin to judge myself. I'll, I'll then begin to sort of angry at my own anger. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which is a ridiculously futile position to be in. Now, when I'm feeling uh, really cheesed off about something, very unhappy about something and angry about it, now I just kind of will accept, okay, that's fine. Embrace that particular emotion. Stay with it for a while. And just talk to it with people so they know where you're at. Don't hide it. Don't pretend otherwise. And actually, over time, it becomes a much quicker way to sort of self-regulate and mm. get myself into a probably better functioning way of being. Yeah, yeah, and process that emotion more quickly. And I'm sure Daniel Goleman's one of his quotes was something along the lines of, any emotion is fine, but any reaction is not. So you want yeah. to be acknowledging that emotion. You know, it's not about not having that anger, but it's about what you do within. It sounds like you've become a lot more skillful, not least in part with this mantra of yours, in terms of how to manage that, which then is even going to benefit your health, not just the results on the pitch. There's a, certainly a health, a strong health aspect. The other thing that I've noticed, and I mean, it's obvious now I say it, but it, it, you're also modeling a type of behavior you really want to see from the people you work with and the athletes you work with. You know, you're being very open about how you're feeling. People then can choose to engage with that in the way they see best. Whereas if previously I'd be very passive aggressive, you know, I'd be very pretending, you know, 
everything's okay, but every ounce of my body language is saying the opposite. And then people wouldn't know how to approach me, wouldn't know how to go about a difficult conversation. Now I'll talk to my anger or talk to my unhappiness or, or the opposite. If I'm delighted with the way we're playing, the way we're performing, the way the lads have been training or you know, I will talk to that now. Whereas in the past, I didn't think it was important for them to know I was hmm. happy with stuff. But now I, I'll share that more frequently. Wow, that's a, a great model from what it sounds like it to me. Now, I'll tell you what, some, a couple of um, things have gone into sporting folklore. One of them is teacup, thinking correctly under pressure, as Sir Clive Woodward kept picking me up because I kept getting it wrong and saying thinking clearly <laughs> under pressure. So thinking correctly under pressure. But another one is thinking thursday isn't it now um i've mentioned it a few times you know i have because you sent me a very nice email just uh, mentioning it and then you very kindly as well sent me a mind map which you're going to have to explain so just very quickly if i just explain what i've already know about uh, or the context around what i know about thinking thursday because what i got from speaking to kate richardson walsh in particular so she said Obviously, in the build-up to the games, you're getting towards the end of the week. So it'd be a Wednesday night. Late on a Wednesday night, you and the rest of the support staff and everything like that would send out an email and everyone would be put into a different team. So it'd be Thursday morning session, different team each week, different captains, different rules, different size pitch, different scoring system. Then you'd be throwing in curveballs left, right and centre. So players might get sent off in the middle of the game. You might just be blowing your whistle willy-nilly. And basically, you're just trying to push people's buttons so that they learn to react, learn about themselves again, about how they tend to react when fatigued and under pressure. So that's what she said. So then you sent me this mind map and it's got skill acquisition theory at the top, long-term objectives processes, point number two, embedded in day-to-day training environment, train hard, fight easy. So at that point, I thought, do you know what? I'm just going to ask you about it to explain it in sort of simple terms. So where has the Thinking Thursday in a legend, where is it right? Where's it gone wrong? And, and what was the point of it? Because clearly it was a very valuable thing. I'm giggling. I mean, we could be here a long time. <laughs> I know, um, I've left it late I, as well. I, I will try and be relatively concise. Relatively, not too, um, too you know. Yeah. Even the name is an alliteration, um, so it's sticky. Yeah. And I think as coaches, making things sticky is a really important part of your role. You know, so your ability to draw on something under pressure is often dependent on how sticky something is. So you know, even the name was sticky. Essentially, um, we wanted to create something that um, was what I would call representative design. So hockey, you know, we've got 11 other teams there. We've got uh, 22 players on the pitch. We've got rolling substitutions, people coming on and off. You've got high physical stress and you've got eight matches in 14 days. So you, you need to try and deal with all of the physical, emotional, technical, tactical issues. And you want to create problem solvers that can deal with those in real time on the pitch. And often I think as coaches, we potentially set our teams up for failure because what we actually provide is a very structured, ordered environment which appears to be good coaching because you see rapid progression because the athletes sort of feel this is ordered and structured and I can make sense of it easily. And actually, the game is the other end of the spectrum. It's at the best case, it's complex. At the worst case, it's very chaotic. So um, the other aspect is it's an element of recall. So any good teacher will tell you, you know, you deliver something and then it's the frequency with which you recall it 
will allow it to sort of have more permanent sense of learning and you know, students, athletes can draw on it under pressure of the environment. So there's an element of recall. So it'll be on facets we've been working on through the week and then forced to recall it in this chaotic, complex environment. And I think the measure of how effective it is is what you've been working on. Do you see it in game six, seven, eight in the Olympic Games? It's all very well. You're seeing progression there and then in the training environment with Bisham Abbey, but that's not a really good measure of learning. You want to see them problem solving under the pressure of a quarter final at the Olympics, a semi final, and then a medal match, preferably the gold medal match. So that that's sort of what sits behind it. But then there were some long term goals. I was very keen to create a model of a depth of distributed leadership through the squad. Again, just born of my own experiences, there's no one person that is going to be perfect in the leadership role all the time. And you've got injuries, you've got rolling substitutions. So you need a, a critical mass of people who are going to take a grip of a situation in a game and act upon it. We would constantly rotate skippers, and that skipper had the role of bringing their team together, essentially preparing and understanding the challenge ahead of them. And then we would deliberately, to use a Clive Woodwardism, sort of dislocate the expectation. So the game would be going on, then we'd change the rules. And that leader would then have to, on the fly, get a grip of themselves, get a grip of their teammates, re-understand what needs to be happening, and then make that so. And then the same token that you then also want people who are going to follow, or as we talk about first followers, people who are going to get behind those leaders and really help steer the ship, push the ship in the way it wants to go. And again, a long-term bit you're building then is a self-reliance in athletes that they can tolerate these things. They can take unfairness. They can take a changing situation, understand that they can uh, take a grip of a teammate that might be losing it next to them rather than just waiting for someone else to do it. They have the ability to do it. And then, um, you know, one of the big movement in psychology has been sort of this self-determination theory. So when you give people autonomy, a sense of competence and a sense of connectedness to others, which essentially this session does every week, you are creating a greater intrinsic motivational desire. So people genuinely look forward to thinking Thursdays because it had those things in it. Because it gave them response, yes. an increased degree of responsibility. And you're connecting them to one another because they're having to work together collaboratively. They're also in charge of their own destiny. They're, they're not just following what the coach is telling them to do. They're, they're having to generate their own solutions. And so that sense of autonomy. And when over time, then they become more and more successful in these complex and chaotic environments, they have a real sense of competence. So, you know, they can draw on that as a source of self-confidence going into major tournaments. Another key feature was we made these Thursdays incredibly tough. A lot of the end final whistleblowing, a lot of people collapsing in heaps on the floor. And that shared hardship creates what I call a real shared belief and preparation. Again, it's something you can draw on and you can look across the little corridor which you were held in before you step onto the Olympic pitch and look at your teammates and, and then look at the opposition and think, I'm not really sure they've been through what we've been through. And, and again, it just builds that sense of, yeah, we're ready. And we're not sure they are, but we're definitely ready. And I guess coaches, I think, can fall foul of unintentionally removing responsibility for performance and learning from their athletes. If they're always filling that space themselves, you probably, over the long term, taking away that skill for athletes to take responsibility for their own performance and learning. 
that is something I deliberately try to grow over a number of years through an Olympic cycle in, in athletes is if you're waiting always for the coach to give you the solution or you're always waiting for the coach to give you feedback rather than you seeking it yourself or finding out a solution yourself, if the coach fills those spaces all of the time, you're probably doing them a disservice. You're probably not equipping them to take responsibility for their own performance and learning. So that, again, sort of is one of the foundational blocks that sits behind a Thinking Thursday and other parts of our program. Something you just said there about equipping them to, rather than a coach jumping in and giving the answer, which you can imagine would be the classic way of a coach behaving, got me thinking in terms of parenting. So I think there's a phrase, helicopter parenting, where the type of parent who is always seeking to do something for their child to make things as easy as possible for them, or they don't want to have to go through this difficult experience or, or whatever, you know, as someone who, as a coach, seeks to have your players work collectively, take responsibility rather than rely on you, has that infiltrated your parenting? Uh, yes, to a degree, although I am, because I'm quite hardwired to see threat in the environment, as, as uh, Tim, our psychologist, would talk about it, my wife would argue I kind of should let the kids knock their heads on the side of the trampoline more often than I do. But I'm a real great believer in, I won't chase the kids around telling them, you know, you need to be ready in 10 minutes. I'll tell them the time we're leaving mm. and they've got to get themselves ready. And you're growing that skill of, well, you've been told the time, you need to get ready. Mm. Um, and it's just a bit of a life skill. Mm. Um, there are aspects that I sort of bring into my parenting, but I wouldn't want to give you the wrong impression. No. Definitely, uh, sometimes I'm a bit overprotective in terms of some of the elements of danger, whereas, whereas my wife, Lisa, is like, you know what, they probably need to fall off that and let, let, them, go on, <laughs> yeah. let them go on with it. And then in terms of like non-sporting environments, and if I think of you know your whole sporting career, and this is what I like about one of the things that I think is so good in terms of when I say sports are metaphor for life, in that so your career as coach leading GB teams stems back so 15, 16 years. And in that time, you've clearly been on this very rapid journey where you've learned a hell of a lot, whether it be the tough feedback or, you know, the highs, the lows, it's like life, but condensed, you can learn a lot quicker, I guess. So do you think like a thinking Thursday or something akin to that could be applicable to businesses, to families, to other areas? Yes, absolutely. I think it's the ability of people that you might in inverted commas call leaders just their willingness to create the problem and then just pass it to their team to solve that that's the simplest way of putting it simon it's like um rather than that leader solving the problem is articulate the problem or create a problem and then pass it over to the group you're then back into that self-determination piece you know autonomy competence connectedness and away you go. I think the skill is how you make scaffold it, frame it, make it feel safe for people to fail, be very explicit about what you're trying to achieve so people aren't sort of second-guessing the intention behind it. But I, yeah, absolutely, I could see people having a lot of fun with that in the, in the workplace environment. That's the thing I think about, say, sport compared to business, where sport most of the time is spent training to then perform, whereas, let's say, business, it's it's all performance. So I suppose... They could start thinking fun Friday. I don't know. I mean, some, something obviously that rhymes, you know. And uh, but then having this thing where you you do create a problem, 
and then let people work it out. And then actually they're going to be better equipped the rest of the time. So that could be a really clever investment of time for the rest of the time. Yes. I mean, there's a little company I occasionally do a little bit of work for now and then called Lane 4, and they, they have fabulous Fridays. And I think they do something very similar where companies, people can seek to just grow a set of skills over a period of time. You might decide for the next six months, we're going to look at the ability for someone to bring energy to an environment. So that, okay, we're going to create a problem and actually the way we work has got to have sort of energy in that environment. And then you'll just design the problem around those parameters. I could definitely see some real wins in that in, in certain domains. There's this saying, isn't there, that, that you fit the amount of work you have to the amount of time you have to do it. So, for example, if you bought back an hour or two every week, let's say when things start getting back to normal and had something like this, everyone would still be able to do their work, potentially, not always, but actually then it might filter through and be really beneficial. I'm sort of thinking as well, I might see if I can introduce this in my <laughs> own family. I don't know, maybe there's some connection. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, but that's something to reflect on. But it's definitely something that can be applied in any area of life, I guess, is is what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if you've read the book Atomic Habits. I have. By, I have. Um, it's yeah. right in front of me I, here, in fact. Oh, there, there we, we go. go. Atomic Habits, James yeah. Clear. Brilliant book. Clear, yeah. So there's sort of the compound interest effect of growing those skills over a period of time and that sort of latent potential where, you know, for the first few weeks, months, it might not feel like there's much traction. Mm. But all of a sudden, the sort of real uptick of people's capacity to solve problems or to do fulfill their role because that skill set has just been bubbling and fermenting and growing. I can absolutely see, you know, imagine you're an employee in that environment. Um, how, how much fun and difference mm. is that going to bring to your environment and you're growing the capacity within your employees? And then I guess as well, you might uncover... The thing that always frustrated me at school was because I was a bit of a gobby son, so I was never considered for any leadership roles. And then my final year, I was made captain of the seconds football. Football's never my sport. And um, the teacher was suddenly like, God, you, you know, you're not a power captain. But he'd written me off because four years earlier, I'd just been a pain in the backside during biology. So actually, I guess doing these kind of practices, you might uncover some gem that you'd written off as someone who's not like that. I have to jump in there, Simon. I think what you do do is you really strip back and understand that leadership takes many many different forms and that actually a lot of people can bring a lot of skills that they didn't perceive as leadership mm. so in the men's program at the moment we do something similar on a thursday we, we call it something different but one of the real growth areas has been realizing that every one of them can bring something quite unique to that space and we're building quite a powerful unit there well, what I know of Harry, he's got leader dripping out of him. I don't know him that well, but he's certainly got something about him. So, yes, I would agree from what my limited knowledge of the people you're working with now. Last couple of bits, uh, Danny, two themes that I just want to ask. We'll start with humility. I'm interested in this because I often get a lot of emails from listeners that will start, you know, I'm sorry for getting in touch but, you know, just wanted to say I really enjoy pod. And obviously I'm there thinking, why are you apologizing? It's so lovely to get emails like this, right? But I think you're the first person who's won an Olympic gold who actually emailed me in roughly the same way. And so I've got it here in front of me. So you say, I hope oh, you'll no. excuse my ad hoc contact. I declined the offer of an agent following rate. I feel ill at ease putting myself out there. Um, and then you finish with this. If this contact does raise your curiosity, brilliant. If not, please forgive my interruption of your day. And I did think, cool, that's brilliantly uh, humble. So I'm interested in why do you think you're like that, despite your success, and then the importance of humility more broadly? Um, 
When I was young, I was a gymnast. I started gymnastics at a very young age and I was reasonably good. And unfortunately, what happened was at primary school, I got paraded at sort of assemblies in front of everybody by the school teachers. And, you know, primary schools can be an interesting environment where you're paraded in front of every people yeah. and um, you got accused of being a big head and all sorts of stuff. And, and um, I think ever since then, I've, I've always been a bit reticent about uh, sort of putting myself out there genuinely i think it's a bit of those some of those early life experiences where you think okay i don't want to blow stuff from the ramparts too widely interesting so that is the young little danny the gymnast that's him still speaking out a little bit i think so yeah i I mean um again without going too deep they're definitely the more and more we sort of work in this environment, I think people understanding some of the things that, you know, we grow up in the environments we grow up in and how we interact with parents, family, friends, mm. sort of how they shape us and the way we think about the world is key to understanding yeah. why we are the way we are. 100%, huge thing. And then just in terms of humility as a value and as something you respect in others and seek to uh, embody as well, just generally? I don't know if it's so much a British trait, it potentially is. It's something that we we really value for me i think it means that you're you're less likely to get in the way of yourself you're possibly more open to the feedback i mean i've definitely been accused of not being open to feedback because i can be a bit bristly at times but um i think that sort of humility you realize there's a lot to learn you don't know you're trying to get better at what you're trying to do so that i think comes out of that quality of humility Uh, again if i refer to sort of someone like Alex is very humble is probably one of her leading players of her generation in the world for the sport that she's chosen but she would die if she heard me saying that about her you know that that's just sort of that humility but that's also the quality that one of many qualities that allowed her to reach that level Mm, absolutely right final thing then as someone who has as a coach, reached the top of the mountain. So you did win Olympic gold. Obviously, you've got your eyes set on uh, the Olympics again uh, with the the gents this time. But in winning the Olympic gold, as you did with that team in 2016, so you know what it's like to achieve the ultimate goal within the sphere that you're working within. But what is more important, do you think, to you, and even you could say not just to you, but what is more important, the journey itself or the destination of winning the gold? It uh, depends on how truthful I'm being to myself. <laughs> um, I've definitely fall into the trap of um, seeking sort of success and outcome. So sort of judging myself by outcome and, and seeking sort of affirmation through those things. And that's not a great place to be. So I think with age and wisdom, I've really come to appreciate is for me, it's about belonging and it's being with like-minded individuals who really want to explore being the best they can be. And through doing that, you you really are striving for an outcome. But if you don't succeed in that, then you're still a really good person. Yeah. Because am I right in saying the day after you won or even the night that you won gold, went straight to the hotel room and were plotting what was the next move? Yes, and I'm not particularly proud about that. That, I think, um, really speaks to what I was talking about, this challenge trap is, you know, rather than being with the staff and with the athletes and letting my hair down and enjoying myself, I didn't know how to switch off. Mm. I'd spent however many years, you know, working incredibly hard to take us to that space, and I just couldn't stop. You know, I had to kind of write what, what next review, think 
And I didn't have the capacity to sort of be in the moment, enjoy that moment. So on paper, it sort of looks, oh, that looks amazing. There's the super coach. He's thinking about how to do it again. The reality is a bit of a sad indictment of where I was really. And instead of just enjoying the moment and taking stock, it was very much onto the next challenge, yeah. the next affirmation. So you weren't smelling the roses and, as much. So, yeah. so therefore, yeah. obviously, we've got the Olympics coming up. I'm not going to do that annoying question, you know, can you win gold, any of that stuff. But let's just, you know, theoretically say you had some wonderful outcome again. Do you think now you would then be able to do that, to stop and smell the roses and enjoy the moment? Yeah, I've almost made a promise to myself that um, I shall go large in the event that we, <laughs> that we do well. Yeah. We're going to yeah. go large. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, Danny, that's a, as good a place as any to end it. Listen, thank you very much indeed. I'll just note down a couple of things I think that stood out for me in terms of what we've chatted about, in terms of you know, tough experiences as you went through, as so many people have been through, can actually build, be the most valuable and was fundamental for you in terms of your later success Honest feedback, kindly delivered. I thought that was a, a really nice and important thing. Don't sweep things under the carpet. Your self-awareness mantra, which I'm definitely nicking. All of our tendency to layer on our own interpretation. Uh, that's what we all do. I mean, crikey, you see it. Let's not go down the social media rabbit hole, but we all do it. And, and ultimately, it's, we've only ever got one view, and it's never the full view. Um, the importance of values over goals that and that uh, responsibility in working collectively. There were lo- loads of things there, really valuable stuff. Any I've missed that really you, you think that were really stick out for you, but I've grabbed a few there. Yeah, no, I think it's a good summary. I guess the Thinking Thursday aspect about, you know, just trying to create a little bit of um, people autonomy, you know, competence, connectedness through, through the environment you create. Danny, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Like I said, I was really excited to speak to you. Your CV and and the journey you've been on is incredible. And uh, I know that uh, Harry gave me a really good quote. What did he say? He can absolutely take us where we want to go. So another ringing endorsement. Oh, that's kind of (laughs) So uh, listen, best of luck. I know you're, you know, heading off to Malaysia with a bit of luck and obviously with the Olympics and like that. best of luck. But it just has been an absolute pleasure because I I do, I'm, I'm fascinated by your sporting journey. I think it's been brilliant and lots of life lessons to come out of it. So just many thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks, Simon. Thank you for the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Don't Tell Me The Score with Danny Kerry. I'm sure you'll agree it was full of fantastic life lessons and nuggets. And I would be delighted to hear what you made of our conversation. So send me your thoughts, your questions, your suggestions. The best way to get in touch is via social media. I'm at Simon Mundy. Please do pay a visit to my website too, where you can sign up to my newsletter. That's simonmundy.com. Anyway, that's it for this episode. Thanks again for listening and I hope you will join me again next time on Don't Tell Me The Score. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves 
without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.